this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. Our electricity market is actually the largest machine in our civilization. Everyone turns their light switch on and you expect energy to come out, but it's an incredibly complex organism or technology that is at the heart of our culture. The policy wonk in me wants to say you can have electricity without an economy, but you can't have economy without electricity. It's a great place to start, I think. Our startup is part of a technology wave that's transitioning that space right now. Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. It is lucky Friday the 13th of July in Australia when I'm recording this podcast with my co-host, Kate Frappel, who's stuck back in time at Thursday the 12th of July, <laughs> 2018. It's one thing, Kate, that a lot of my American friends, when I make friends in America on my trips and I come back here and then they say, what's the time of day there? And I tell them, and they're like, whoa, that's awesome. You're in the future. Yeah. They really like it. <laughs> I really like that. So that's why I, yeah. So, uh, but as Australians, we get used to that, that we're a little bit out of sync. But you are listening to episode number 121 of the It's a Monkey podcast. We talk about everything related to technology, startups, entrepreneurship. And uh, we've been away for a little while, but we uh, got some great episodes coming up. I've been doing some terrific interviews. We do aim to keep them going once a week. And, uh, you can subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. You can also subscribe for an email update on itsamonkey.com just to get a ping when the latest uh, episode is up. You can also email us if you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Uh, we've got some emails that we need to get back to. And uh, we can also, Kate, we haven't spoken about the Startup Minute for a while. We had a few of those a few episodes ago. If you have a small business, a tech startup company, and you want to have a free promotion and a link on our show notes, free. We don't want anything from it. It's just our way of bringing forth to our users interesting businesses and companies and, uh, and our way of giving back to the industry. I promise you there's no catch. I can guarantee you. I think people, Kate, are so used to a catch sometimes. You know, there is no catch. Send us an audio of 10, 20 seconds of who you are, what you're about, and we'll put you on the show. As long as you're not Cisco or Microsoft or something like that, as long as you're an up-and-coming small business, you can be a consultancy, anything. We'd love to help you. We know you're out there listening, so send us through a startup minute. Um, we've got a great show coming up. Coming up uh, later on in the show, I chat with James Eggleston, who's a senior analyst at Power Ledger and a doctoral researcher at the Cusp Institute. He's in Australia, based in Perth, and he works for a company. He's part of a company called Power Ledger, which uh, is a world, the world-leading peer-to-peer marketplace for renewable energy. Now, it's a lot of blockchain-based ICO technology, and it's it's an interesting interview. A little bit takes a little bit to wrap your head around, as always, with blockchain uh, bits and pieces. Kate, have you gotten much into Bitcoin and blockchain? How's your literacy around uh, that uh, that industry? Ah, no, not a lot. Not a lot. It's still on my to-do list, actually. I want to see this famous to-do list. Can't you make it public and we it's can all comment on long. it? It's very long. But like, I like, I like making lists because I get through them. But it also, the list always changes because priorities go to the top. And unfortunately, you, Bitcoin what, goes to the bottom. <laughs> what, what, you should, by the way, you should bump that up to the top or not the top, but bump that up. At least watch some videos and get some general understanding. There's some terrific videos on how the blockchain works. And, um, I've, you got know, a, the, I've got a general idea. Like I've sort of uh-huh. researched things for the podcast and things like that. I just haven't actually invested myself. What tool do you use for your to-do list? Uh, I have 
lots of notepads, so I write things uh-huh. down. <laughs> Still use like analog and, uh, ink. Yeah, I love them. I think I, th- I think it's good because then I can write little notes next to them and scratch them out and stuff. But I also for work, I rely on an app called Wonderlist, uh-huh. which is just really simple to do list, and you just tick it off. But you can also yeah. assign it to each other and stuff. We've used it a little bit in the team, um, but I just use it for myself to keep track of everything. I've tried to create lists, and what happens is I create them, and I don't come back and update them, and it just somehow I'm not a list person, and I'm always impressed when yourself and Joe, um, who, who's business operations manager, who's just had a baby boy, so congrats to Joe. I hope she listens to our podcast. <laughs> I'll send her a ping and say, now that you've got a bit more, in one way, a bit more time or time to listen to podcasts while you do things, you should make sure you listen to us. And Joe's great on lists as well, but um yeah, I'm not. I'm not quite sure why I'm not. I'm not. A, I, I do have lists, but this may sound strange. They actually in my head. I definitely have lists though, but they tend to be in my head. Hmm. As long as you remember everything. <laughs> I, I think I got I to think, a point where I started forgetting things, so then I started relying on lists, and this just stuck. Look, in fairness, maybe your role and Joe's role require you've got a lot more little things that need to take care of maybe i've got a lot more chunky things that need to take care of maybe the the job lends itself differently maybe if i had you know i was chatting to a friend who uh, gets commissioned around the world to set up spas and fancy hotels and um, he's setting up one at the moment in japan and and he just said lists are his his best friend there's just so many little things to take care of so maybe if i was organizing a royal wedding or something i really couldn't get away without having lists so Maybe it's a little bit of the nature of my job, but um, yeah, I would love to see, love to see um, the list, your your famous list. But yeah, blockchain. We have a interesting chat with Power Ledger. Right? I'm trying to understand as much as I can about Bitcoin, blockchain, ICOs. There's still a lot happening in the industry, even though Bitcoin has come down in price from twenty thousand US dollars down to six thousand. So a lot of people are not so interested it's all it was so exciting this thing was just inflating at an incredible rate and everyone felt like they were losing out so they were were jumping on the bandwagon but now that that's come down a lot and, and it's been flattish people aren't so a lot of the general public aren't as interested so we got that interview coming up later on in the show but as usual we cover a couple of news items tech news items because there's always so much happening it's a good excuse to find out uh, what's going on in our great, exciting industry. Funnily enough, Kate, when I meet people and I tell them I work in tech and I have a tech business, one of the first things that they they often say is, wow, that industry changes so fast, it must be really difficult to work in that industry. Um, people really sense that our industry just moves at, at an incredible rate. Yeah. It's actually, I think, as by being in tech, you have to spend a lot of time reading and just staying up to date to make sure that you're on the ball. A lot of time, a lot of time, and it's compounding and, you know, it's uh, specializing and deepening and you have to go deep and wide. It's, it's yeah, it's it's tricky. But anyway, let's let's talk about this week's news items. Instagram, well, which of course is owned by Facebook, they announced recently IGTV, Instagram TV, I assume it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's Standalone a standalone app, app for, for longer videos. So tell us a little about, uh, about Instagram. TV, IGTV. Yeah, so they've basically spun off a separate app called IGTV, and it's for longer-form videos. So basically creators can have channels. Think about like YouTube. It's sort of a YouTube competitor, 
but it's only mobile at this stage. Um, so YouTube's still a lot bigger, but Instagram also. So they sort of had this stories feature, which they still have, but a lot of people were recording long videos, recording themselves talking and, you know, stuff that should have been longer, but they kept being limited and cut off. So this is sort of a solution for that. And they've separated it too. So stories can stay short and easily digestible. And then IGTV is kind of like a long form. So it's both for live video and it archives it, right? Yeah. Yep. So you can live stream something and then it will stay on your Instagram um, sort of feed in a way permanently. I'm not sure that, it, you know, I might have to come back to you on the live thing, but you actually upload videos. So at this stage, you can upload 10 minutes, like 10 minutes right. worth of video. Uh, if you right. have a large account, you can post up to an hour. Um, but the vision is that anyone can upload unlimited length of videos. Uh, it's just right. at the moment they've sort of capped it. But yeah, I'm not sure about the live thing. And in terms of your profile, I think I think what you can do is you can use stories to link to your TV channel, but it doesn't right. necessarily appear. So there's actually an icon in the Instagram app that you know you can tap on to get to IGTV, or you can just go to IGTV by itself. Okay, yeah, I, I'm looking at my Instagram now and there was a little note at the top that said you can view a video of sunrise at Bondi Beach. I, I don't know how or where that's from, but um, yeah, and there's have... a little TV icon in the top right, which I'm clicking on, and it says search IGTV for you following popular continue watching. Yeah, so it's all the people, so your community, I guess, all the people you follow on Instagram, plus they're also recommending recommending videos that they think you're probably going to like as well. It's quite interesting, these apps, uh, they're obviously trying to make sure that you don't leave them, right? And trying to, yeah, they don't want you to hop out and go to YouTube or to go to Snapchat. And, um, but it's, it's always a little bit sad, I think, when these beautiful, simple apps start becoming more complicated, right? It is. Uh, it is. But I think like, Instagram sort of made a good decision by separating it. So you can still mm -hmm. use Instagram for what it is, but... You know, if you are interested in longer videos, you can go to the separate app, um, which is smart. I think I was sort of, I was sort of actually personally getting to a point with the stories where I was getting sick of the longer form stuff and people trying to talk and and you know it should have been in a long format, but they keep getting cut off because the stories have I think it's fifteen seconds per right. screen. Um, so you, someone would start talking and then at fifteen seconds you'd get cut off and then they'd start again. It was just very kind of jagged. So I like the idea that they've separated that. And so stories can sort of stay, you know, short videos and pictures, you know, with stickers, things like that. It's easily digestible. But the longer form videos, I think they they needed to be separated. And I think that's a good move. And they also um, probably have watched the rise and rise of YouTube. Mm. And YouTube's really gone nuts. And particularly with male demographic apparently for some reason and, and anecdotally I, I see that where myself and a lot of friends use YouTube a lot and a lot of my female friends and my sister for instance don't. Not quite sure why that is uh, but males tend to be statistically more, more interested in the YouTube side of things. But a lot of people don't know that in Australia, America and I think there's one or two other jurisdictions you can pay nine bucks a month and you can remove ads on YouTube mm. and it is probably the best $10 I spend every month 
it's wonderful. Not only does it remove the ads, it allows you to download the videos if you want to. It, allow, it, it means on your mobile phone you can actually listen to the videos without actually having the video in front of you. So you can do other things on your phone mm. while you – used to be called, I think, YouTube Red. I think now it's called YouTube Premium. You can get an account, I think, even for 25 bucks that gives you four slots to give to friends and family or supposed to be for family. I use YouTube a lot and I'm continuing to use it more and more. And I even so much so I wanted to have a chat with you about popping the podcasts back on. We used to pop the podcast back on YouTube and we, we've got it. We've got a few views, nothing substantial, but I've even started to listen to my favorite podcasts on YouTube now. So YouTube, yeah, YouTube's becoming, and it's, it's landing up being nice that it's a portal where everything is. You don't have your podcast app and your video app and your social media app and, and YouTube's algorithms for surfacing videos that are interesting to you are fantastic. You know, what I, I watch quite a diverse view of music videos and business related conferences and um, self-development talks and somehow it gets an algorithm of the mix of and then surfaces some some fantastic ones so that's incredibly useful in a world where there's so much content and you really only want to spend your time on the good content the fact that it can surface this good content to you i find incredibly valuable it's very very useful to me yeah i can see that definitely with youtube um I, I mean, I use it if I am looking for something or I'm looking for a tutorial, but it's not something that I do just for fun or just just, just for the sake of scrolling through. I kind of need to have a reason to be there. But yeah, as you said, like I also notice that like lots of, you know, the male demographic definitely prefers YouTube. I've got a lot of friends um, who are, you know, obviously really into skiing and snowboarding, living in Whistler. And the amount of time they spend just watching snowboarding videos on YouTube. I mean, they're interesting and stuff, but I get to a point where it's like, hmm, okay, they love it. They absolutely love it. And there's all these kind of sport documentaries and you name it all over YouTube and they love it. And I think maybe that's why Instagram has seen the success. And I, I don't know for a fact, but I'm wondering if Instagram has a stronger female demographic and thinking, well, you know, maybe we can be the, the YouTube for, for that demographic where it's more of a fashion, art, design, lifestyle type of bent as opposed to tech, music, randomness type of bent. I mean, the one thing that I don't quite get is watching people play video games. Mm. That's, that's a whole world, a massive world. Um, you know, these guys become, and women become rock stars. So it's, but it's, it's obviously something I don't understand because there must be skill and, you know, a lot, a lot involved in it. But it's, it's, I, I don't quite get it and I think that's quite big on YouTube as well if I'm correct mm. watching watching people play video games yeah actually on Instagram as uh, I was reading today the whole idea as well is so younger demographics aren't watching TV or listening to the radio anymore uh, they're spending more time on their phones but all these brands and stuff still need a way to show them video so that's sort right. of how this has been born and they're spending more time on YouTube so I think I think you're right, Instagram's sort of seen that success and thought, well, we've got like quite a large section of our audience is, is young, young millennials, and they, they're going to be here and they want to watch video or they, it's just like a new form of TV. 
Yeah, I mean, the last time I even watched free-to-air TV or listened to free-to-air radio in Australia, and even if I get it, it was was ages ago, and if I get into an Uber and they have commercial radio radio on with stupid jokes and stupid ads, and it's just it's, it feels very dated, it feels unnecessary, and it feels like there's a lot better options. Um, I've just downloaded Instagram TV, that separate app. I'll, I'll have a play with it. Of course, um, you know, Instagram's owned by Facebook. They haven't done, as far as I can see, a, a, a strong monetization effort on Instagram yet. There are a few ads and there, there are some options, but I think there's still a lot of room to monetize further. And what's interesting, Kate, is Facebook has reached new highs on their share price. I think 200 and I think today they reached an all-time high. I'll just quickly check Facebook. 200, nearly $203, right? Wow. So um, it, it's an in, going to be interesting to watch. They've still got WhatsApp and they've still got Instagram that they can push monetization. We don't give financial advice on the site. I do own some Facebook shares, so I'm not a, I'm not trying to manipulate the price in my favor. Um, just, just to be transparent about that. But yes, yeah, so all these efforts on Instagram to find new interesting ways to monetize their audience, which is huge, 1 billion people at least yeah. on Instagram and all these new little niches in the, in the app to highly target little ads and little other promotions is, uh, it will be interesting. I still wish these apps would all allow you to pay 10 bucks to just get rid of all the ads. Um, for me, that's a great option. I think that's a new, but I think they land up making less money than the advertising option. Yeah, good chance. I know um, IGTV uh, has no ads to start with. Yet. Yet. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. no. The, the CEO says that it, they will be there at some point, but um, for now they're keeping it ad free. Well, I think maybe that's why YouTube only allows YouTube premium in certain jurisdictions. Um, they're probably still playing with it, and also they probably. Um, they probably worked out that maybe in those jurisdictions it's worth their while, but in other jurisdictions, the ad model uh, definitely at scale, the ad model, you know, just, just kills the SaaS model. You know, the biggest companies in the world, except Apple, um, Google, Facebook, Twitter, all ad based, mostly ad based. They have some other streams. Um, Apple, not ad based. Obviously, it's, it's a physical product based and app store based. 10 years, Kate, since the, apparently since the app store was launched, Tim Cook wow. from Apple tweeted out um, that it's been 10 years since the Apple store, uh, the sort of um, the app store, the iPhone sort of ecosystem launched. So it feels like, feels like forever we've had it, right? It does it does well? They they had some changes this week too. I think they uh, announced that they're no longer selling the MacBook Pro um, as we know it, and they've got a new one coming out. And if you fully spec it out mm-hmm. by choice, like this is not the base price. The base price is still similar, but if you fully spec it out, it's like over six grand. Wow. Yeah. Well. I'm going to be due for a new laptop one of these days. I've had my trusty macbook air and uh but i've been waiting for for a nice tried and tested new model of theirs i know they've had problems apple's had problems with some of their new release macbooks so i've been uh, been waiting but uh, i'll definitely keep an eye on that that's interesting keep the, the new releases and other other story we wanted to chat about this seems really interesting scandia electronics want to make earrings that double as earphones i think 
before we talk about the story, I think we're going to head to a world, Kate, where we're just going to have some sort of permanent headphones. I mean, we, I, I keep my headphones in so when I'm working, when I'm walking, when I'm, there's just so much to listen to, to consume. I think we're going to head to that point where we will have something permanent. But tell me, tell me about these earrings that double as earphones. Seems really, really interesting. <laughs> so basically, think about, think about AirPods. So it's a mm-hmm. very similar idea. So they're Bluetooth, Bluetooth earphones, basically, but they are designed into earrings. So if you have pierced ears, they can actually just sit next to your ears the whole day and you can just use them. It's sort of, imagine a beaded drop. So it's like a hanging earring off your ear and you can just push it up and into your earlobe. So it's, it never actually comes off your ear unless you take it out like you would an earring. But it uses the same mechanism of you, you actually put something in your ear. It doesn't use something fancy like bone conduction or any type of other technique to to get the audio into your ear. It's just a standard. Something does physically go into your ear, but it's attached to the earring, right? Yeah, so the main benefit is that you just don't lose it. It's always just sitting there, but you don't have to have it in. You can just kind of push it up, push it down, push it up, push it down. And they've got a few different styles. So they've got a like a, a basic pair at the moment, it's a Kickstarter, I should say that. It's a Kickstarter idea. Right. Um, Are you going to support it? I don't know. We'll see. I've got the AirPods. I'm pretty happy with AirPods at the moment. Right. Um, but these ones, yeah, so you, the the base you can start at about $180 uh, as a pledge. And then if you want extra bling, you want to decorate it, you can go up to like 350 with like crystals <laughs> in there as well. Uh, and they also have an athletic version. And you can just, you can't change the actual earbuds, so that's always going to be white, but you can change the surrounding sort of frame colors of it. But yeah, it's kind of a good idea, I think. And they're not waterproof. That's like another sort of downside. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you jump in the shower with your earrings in, you could be a little bit doomed. So, excuse my ignorance, but do most women shower with e- earrings? Depends on the earrings. I think so. Right. I think so, yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, do you know, I, I used to have an earring many, many years ago when it was cool for guys to have one earring. Yeah. 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 I've still got the hole in the left ear. So. <laughs> it really <laughs> depends on the buy. quality, to be honest. Like, if I've got right. nice earrings in, it's, I sort of have everyday earrings and nice earrings. And if I've got the nice ones in, then, yeah, they come out. I don't wear them in the shower. But the everyday ones, yeah, all the time. It's no point taking them in and out. AirPods still look goofy, Kate. Really? I mean, I they're pretty they're popular in Sydney. They still, I mean, it's not bad. And, you know, just there's still something that looks goofy about them. It just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, only, I, think, I think the reason why they don't look goofy is because they're Apple and it's sort of trendy to wear them. But they, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure why. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe it is because they sort of got that earringish sort of look, but they're not earrings. Or I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I still think they look a little bit goofy, but they obviously work and people like them. Um, these these earrings obviously have to be charged somehow, right? Yep. So, again, they're really similar to the AirPods. They have like a little case, so you can listen for five hours on a fully charged battery, and then 15 minutes in, in the case will give you another three hours. Interesting. I've gone through all sorts of headphones. I've used the Plantronics Bluetooth headphones, which are really fantastic. The thing that I get annoyed with Bluetooth headphones is having to charge them, um, and I do use headphones a lot. Mm. 
just just get really annoyed with having to check that there's so ma- many bits and pieces you have to check that are charged these days it's just one more so i use bose my, the bose sort of simple just headphones not not the fancy ones i really really like and but i do go through phases of definitely losing losing headphones and misplacing them and then landing up in pockets and, and not finding them and it's it's I've, I've always wondered why the phone companies kate don't somehow engineer the phone with some way of keeping the headphone a headphone of sorts more integrated with the phone right? it's true like an attachment like some like some little compartment that's well designed within the phone that even if it's wired, you can reel it out and it goes back in. And something that's more intelligent that it will obviously make it a little bit bulkier. But yeah, um, Apple's like I guess touched on that not not in like a physical design way, but they've designed the find my iPhone, find my AirPods, so you can track those things when you lose them. Right. But it's not. It's obviously not a, not physically there, but you can use apps to to locate missing missing earphones missing phones yeah i think as i mentioned at, at, at the top of the segment i think eventually there will be some way that we have are permanently sort of plugged in and i think it will be when we we, we get that um, it all sounds very very sort of sci- sci-fi but when we get the way of actually communicating directly with our brain you know, there'll be some sort of a Bluetooth equivalent that talks to our brain, and I think we'll actually have no device, but probably a little bit of way away from that yet. Yeah, I'd say a long way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, it's going to be interesting when we're still doing this podcast in 10 years' time, Kate, to look back on some of these episodes and how dated they're going to seem, mm. right? Technology. Yeah, it's one thing when you watch movies and TV, uh, movies, old movies, old TV series. A lot of the themes are very contemporary: relationships and family issues, and you know, career. But when you see the technology in the background, wow, it looks dated, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, the interesting thing is when you look back on these movies and stuff, you can see where the inspiration came from. So you look at old movies and you say, "Oh, I've actually got that now." You know, or it's yeah. so different now, you know, especially if it's like a futuristic movie at the time. And you think, oh, actually, it's it's not really that futuristic anymore. We're living it. So in 10 years, we're like, yeah, we'll have a, a Bluetooth, a brain tooth that, that talks to the brain direct. And we won't have to worry about headphones and there'll be no headphone companies. <laughs> and you just connect to your, you got you got to get your unique brain signature. Your phone's got to learn your unique brain signature. And then it communicates in brain waves. Whatever, you know, you play your YouTube videos in brain waves to your to your your head. You know? So could be cool. Could be super confusing. What if you were thinking about playing a YouTube video but you didn't want to play a YouTube video yet? Would it play the YouTube video? No, I, th- I think I think initially it's just one way, right? You can hear your phone, but you don't send commands to your phone, right? So you'd still play a YouTube on your phone, but it's but you don't have headphones, you don't have a speaker. It just communicates with that part of your brain that experiences sound. Oh, that'd be okay. Yeah, I'd be on. We board should kickstarter it. We should kickstarter it. Maybe. 
<laughs> do you know any? Do you know any? If there's any engineer listening that wants to, it would be, how cool would that be? That would be wow. It'd be really, really into. I mean, they've got devices where you put over your brain, and you can actually train the device to move a cursor just by thinking. So you can train an, a user interface already via brain waves. So the, the technology, there there are rumblings already. A hmm. uh, lot of refinement needed, but um, yeah, interesting. Interesting times. Anyway, you've been listening. You are listening to the episode one to one of the It's a Monkey podcast. Remember, you can contact us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. You can tweet us, and we love hearing from you. And um, we're going to take a short break. After the break, we're going to play the chat I had with James Eggleston, who's a senior analyst at PowerLedger and a doctoral researcher at Cusp Institute. And we talk about PowerLedger, which is a peer-to-peer electronic, uh, sorry, an energy marketplace. We talk about a lot of this blockchain and, and ICO sort of concepts, which if you're interested in blockchain and ICOs, it's, um, it's interesting. Some of, some of it's a little bit hard to piece together, but endure through all the bits and pieces, and it is, it is an interesting chat. And um, we're not going to do a post-chat today, so we'll leave it at that. Enjoy the interview, and um, we'll see you over the next couple of weeks. Stay with us. We're going to a short break and we'll play the interview after the break. Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the Business Operations Manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Manage Flitter can help you quickly and cheaply build an organic following on Twitter? Let me explain in six easy steps. Step one, find new prospects on Twitter with Power Mode, Manage Flitter's advanced Twitter search feature. Step two, easily filter and sort results to find the most relevant Twitter accounts for you to follow. Step three, follow these Twitter accounts using Manage Flitter's simple interface. Step four, unfollow accounts that do not follow you back within 14 days. Step five, watch your Twitter follower numbers grow as high quality accounts follow you back. Step six, Rinse and repeat to maintain consistent organic Twitter account growth. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the founder and the CEO of Manage Flitter. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. As you know, we always try to interview uh, thought leaders in the technology in- uh, industry, and we really cast our net wide as to what the technology industry really means. And something we haven't really chatted about a lot, but yet is actually incredibly fundamental to our industry, is power, the, the element that drives our, our whole uh, um, state of the economy. I remember even many, many years ago at my university when the, when the power went out, this was in South Africa, the, the, everything ground to a halt. And it's one of these things that you really never question, but when it's missing, boy, do you feel it. And I'm happy to say um, at the end of my Skype line, I have a, I have a, a guest, James uh, Eagleston, who is the senior analyst at PowerLedger, which is a really interesting company we're going to talk all about. But he's also the doctoral researcher at the Curtin University Sustainability Policy Institute. James, thanks so much for joining us, I believe from Perth, right? That's correct. Thank you for having me, Kevin. 
So James, let's uh, let's get right into it. Powerledger is one of these companies that I've heard a little bit about in the tech startup world pop up every now and then. And it's uh, definitely a, a company when I was looking at your website, I was thinking, wow, it's definitely not your, not your standard e-commerce or two-sided marketplace company. No, so uh, Powerledger, uh, we've been around since um, late 2015 and uh, we've registered as a company in um, Australia uh, in 2016. Uh, what we provide is a software for electricity markets. Um, our mission is to democratise and decarbonise the electricity market itself. And what we do is we provide a software that forms the transactive layer within electricity markets. Uh, so what we ultimately do um, is uh, provide a service that can be used by market incumbents such as energy retailers, but we also have products that work right up the vertical um, or vertically integrated supply chain in that space as well. Uh, but, but in your intro, you know, you've alluded to this idea that you know, the electricity market is actually the largest machine in our civilization. Everyone turns their light switch on and you expect energy to come out, but it's an incredibly complex organism or technology that is at the heart of our culture. The policy wonk in me wants to say you can have electricity without an economy, but you can't have economy without electricity. It's a great place to start, I think. Our startup is part of a technology wave that's transitioning that space right now. Now, a lot of people complain that electricity is too expensive, particularly in Australia. I'm not sure um, about other countries. Is this just merely perception because people don't enjoy paying for things and relative to the value that we get out of it, um, it's actually quite cheap? Or or is there actually are there actually distortions in the marketplace that the electri- electricity market is not actually that efficient? And is this one of the problems that you're trying to address? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is um, the reduction of the cost of energy is at the heart of our of our software. Um, so uh, I guess just to contextualise that, and I'll speak uh, relative to Australia, but I mean we, we work all over the world. And interestingly, it's the asset design and the market that causes a, uh, a perception of high price. Uh-huh. And uh, anyone in any country that has a similarly designed uh, market, you know, experiences the same issue of, of an inflated price. So it, it would be a fair comment to say that in Australia, energy prices are high. Um, there's many reports out there that have that have proven this. And these are reports written, you know, very recently. Grattan Institute produced one recently about the national energy market. And there's quite a lot of political rhetoric around the price of energy. Um, in Western Australia, for instance, it, it was one of the main issues that decided our last state election. So, um, you know, right in the forefront of the mind of the voter, um, but also it's something that, you know, we all experience. We, we all pay energy bills. It's unavoidable. And, um, you know, no one wants to see those prices going up. You know, so, so how did we get to where we are? Why does energy cost what it does? To look at that, you'd probably want to look at energy market design and evolution over the last hundred years. And, and what we've seen is, you know, for instance, when my grandfather was a child, you know, he would have had an oil lamp at home. You know, this is only, this is, you know, one generation away from my parents. Now, at that point in time, there were power networks, uh, but, but what would happen is large suburbs would have their own power network right across Australia. And over time, we started to see those networks come together. They became agglomerated, you know, similar to what we actually saw with the internet, um, with WANs and LANs becoming an, a global internetworked operation. But what's, what began to happen was technology came in where we could have a large centralised generator, which was great. Because what that meant is you could have unprecedented reliability. You see, in the smaller networks, you wouldn't be guaranteed electricity 100% of the time. And bringing centralised generation in and this reliability that was just 
unbelievable. That also brought problems. And and one of the problems it was uh, that, that it brought in is that no one wants to live next door to that huge, you know, in, in, in that time it was a coal-fired generator. You know, you want the electricity, you want the reliability, but, you know, no one wants to live next door to that. And then the problem the market designers had to, had, had to resolve was, you know, if your coal mine is over here and your city is over there, you know, what's the most efficient way to get that coal to your generator and have it consistently arrive on time so you can provide reliable electricity? And what that led to was centralised approaches to generation, lots of infrastructure between generators and consumers. And, you know, 50, 30, 40 years ago, you know, that was definitely the best way to design a market. But what we've started to see now is the rise of distributed generation, cheap electricity, cheap generators um, that can be located close to points of consumption and reduce the overall um, burden on infrastructure to, uh, to, to get that electricity to consumers. And so when people talk about price in electricity and to bring all of this together, by and large, most of what you pay for your electricity is actually recovering the cost of the infrastructure it took to build to get that electricity to you. And so we have a situation now where, you know, if you want to enter the market as a generator, you, you may want to enter a, with a small um, generation asset and, and locate that closer to your customer base. And if that's a generator such as a wind farm or a solar farm or geothermal or wave, no one really necessarily minds living next door to those technologies. So you can actually have them very close. And so the arguments that are coming out now is, you know, if the local renewable generator is producing energy which has no fuel cost, you know, why am I paying so much? And, and, and that's a legitimate question because what we've done is built out this network. You might hear the term gold plating. We've overbuilt network infrastructure. And, uh, and what we're seeing now is a transition and innovation outpaces regulation in this space. Energy markets are very slow to move. But that cry from the consumer about high energy prices is very real. And, um, and, and there is technology to reduce that price today. It uh, really just comes down now to um, how governments, you know, can bring in future policy to bring that down. And also, um, you know, what market incumbents in the energy market, what, what, what the appetite they have for, for legitimate innovation and, um, you know, how they can structure a commercial model around re- reduced energy use from consumers. Okay, so let's let's get into the power ledger story. Now, I'm looking at the website and your, and your FAQ, you have... What is PowerLedger? PowerLedger is a blockchain-based peer-to-peer energy trading platform enabling consumers and businesses to sell their surplus solar power to their neighbors without a middleman. Now, that sounds really, really interesting and really, really useful, especially to a country like Australia that has so much sun, right? Absolutely. PowerLedger, the way it came about was uh, all of us work in the electricity market, and um, this is a PowerLedger is kind of a solution that addresses a very real problem in the market. So what we do is we use a, a technology referred to as distributed ledger technology, or you know commonly known as blockchain. And what what blockchain allows us to do is 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 it will blockchain more broadly allows one to transmit value digitally. So you know for instance. If I owe you $20 and we're sitting at a restaurant and I might have a $20 note in my pocket, I can pull that $20 note out, I can give that to you, and, and you're pretty confident at that point in time that that $20 is yours because that, that, that physical commodity or object has actually changed hands. Now, or I might look in my wallet and not see that $20 note. There might be nothing in there. Um, I might have to get my phone out to transfer you some more money. 
So what I'll do is I'll open up my mobile, I'll open up my banking app, I'll type in $20, put in your bank account details and press send. Now, that money sent digitally um, takes three days to clear in Australia um, and, and it's similar rates around the world. And it's quite isn't interesting it instant, that... Isn't it instant these days in Australia? Well, um, they can, within the same bank, it can be instant, but but the, the, the system that underpins that is not... Mm-hmm. I thought even in between banks, it was a, a lot quicker these days, but I do stand to be corrected. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is getting quicker, but ultimately what happens is um, uh, banks will just have a long ledger of outflows into that particular bank. So bank A and bank B, they'll just have a reciprocal arrangement and, and they'll just uh, monitor flows of value, you know, between um, both banks. And then what they'll do is they'll true that up after a period of time. And then if there's any imbalance, they'll, they'll, they'll settle that transaction I mean, there's clearance houses. I mean, there's other there's other there's other uh, levers in there. But but my point is that um, it's actually quite di- it's actually quite difficult digitally to transfer value um, from from a computer science perspective. Very hard. You know, we use the term send when we say I'll send you an SMS, and um, we don't send that at all. We actually copy it, uh, and that's fine for an SMS. Not so good for a digital dollar, because um, if you have the capacity to copy a digital dollar, I um, mean, you'll very quickly have a million of them. So. Um, in 1982, there's a research paper called the Byzantine Generals Problem. It frames this problem perfectly and wind the clock forward to 2018. A bunch of innovations since then have been combined um, to form a blockchain technology. And what blockchain technology allows is I can open up my phone and I can send value to you, but I can do it without banks. I can actually send from phone to phone. And what we do at Powerledger is we can apply that type of uh, technology to the energy sector. So rather than having middlemen um, buying and selling energy, um, and some some middlemen in the energy sector, all they do is buy and then sell, but they take a, a, a co- you know, there's a cost for doing that. Um, we can automate that. And that's what PowerLedger is. It's a software that can um, track provenance of a kilowatt hour. And what we can do is anyone that receives energy can pay, will pay for it immediately, digitally from their um, wallet automatically, but if you're exporting energy, say from a solar panel on your roof, you're, you're receiving payment instantly as well. So if I'm literally just a, a person in suburban Sydney and I've set up a great solar um, setup and I happen to not use a lot of power or to, I assume it's plugged in and, and it just taps into the excess as it happens, literally someone as sort of quote unquote in a way unsophisticated as that can benefit from this marketplace yeah absolutely so um uh, just to just to put some greater context around that um power obviously works within the rules of each country in which it operates so you know for instance in sydney um you're obviously still beholden to the same market rules that everyone else is that we're all currently connected to right now the way that would play out in Sydney is um, a, a retailer would use our software and then offer the peer-to-peer trading service to the customer, and uh, and ultimately that's how it would play out. So if that if if neighbour A and neighbour if a neighbour's like two neighbours on a street both sign up to the same retailer, um, retailer A use our software, then they can peer-to-peer trade through the network. Right and. Um Tell us a little bit about, I mean, I, as I said, I've been hearing about rumblings about PowerLedger every now and then in, in the press and the startup groups. Um, the company is pretty new. It's in a pretty sexy space. Probably, you guys probably cover two sexy spaces, blockchain and energy, right? So you, 
you you definitely uh, have all of that covered. How how's the company going? And and uh, are you guys funded? Are, are you based purely in Perth? Tell us a little bit about all the the gory details. Yeah, great. Um, so I guess um, uh, there were there was a number of us uh, who met uh, around um, 2015, and uh, we're all grappling with. It turned out to be the same problem, but from different perspectives. Um, there were two blockchain guys. Um, my ba- my background um, is in um, government, and there were an energy executive from a retailer and a network operator, um, and also a policy writer. And we're all looking at this issue around settling transactions for electricity. From my view in that, I was uh, working on a, a project we were putting in um, centralized battery and solar systems, wanted to put in centralized battery, big solar system on the rooftop, and then share that energy automatically using a software. Um, looked for a software, didn't exist. And, you know, that led us to create PowerLedger. Now, that was at the beginning self-funded. So um, by definition, we all self-funded it. And then from that point on, um, we developed a proof of concept project. So um, that was around um, early 2016. Um, the National Lifestyle Villages in Bustleton, Western Australia, was our first proof of concept project where we utilised the blockchain to transact energy within an embedded network, um, a lifestyle village um, where residents had solar PV. So once we established that, um, and the, the platform used to, looked very different in our, in our um, very rough cut proof of concept to what it does now, um, but through that we ended up um, creating a commercial product um, for behind the meter applications. And then in parallel with that, we held an event um, referred to as a token generation event. Mm-hmm. Um, more commonly, they're referred to as ICOs or initial coin offerings, where we created our own cryptocurrency and then um, offered um, that some of that currency out to um, people in that in the cryptocurrency space. That event ended um, October 6, uh, 2016, and we, we raised um, around $36 million. Now, the company, we own 100% equity. But we did we did um, obviously um, offload tokens um, through the token generation event, and then that was in parallel with the completion of our first commercial product. And so then we started deploying um, our commercial product behind the meter, so in apartment buildings and um, uh, embedded networks, basically solving a very real world problem. Um, from our perspective, you know, we, we this is a problem we grappled with as energy professionals. Uh, and and we ended up creating a software purely because we thought one would exist but didn't. So we created one. We created our own, and that was PowerLedger. So it, through those applications, we started to look at parasitic loading of our blockchain in terms of energy consumption. Um, we do use a proof of stake blockchain, not proof of work. Um, proof of work is what um, yields high energy consumption in the Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, that's that's the Bitcoin approach, right? So yeah, the, the the proof of work where you've you've got to use all this power to to solve these complicated problems and then to spit out a Bitcoin. Correct. Yeah. They, so you expend um, electricity through processing power, uh, resolve a zero knowledge proof, and then other nodes on that network can see um, whether or not your answer is correct, which then um, gives you the authority to uh, write a block to the chain. Well, we, we, we adopted proof of stake and the way you can envisage that is, is more like the House of Representatives. You know, you need so many votes to verify truth, like we would when we pass legislation in our um, Washminster system of government. And what we ended up, we were able to do, we were able to uh, reduce the energy consumption um, through through that process. And we patented our own blockchain referred to as the eco chain, which is designed uh, explicitly for use in energy markets. And what that meant is we could do a large network, you know, for instance, I'm calling you from Perth in Western Australia. We're on the Southwest interconnected system. There's 2.2 million people connected to that isolated network. Uh, we could probably handle 
the trading engine for that on a series of laptops. So um, through resolving that issue, we're able to scale up. And so we're able to go beyond embedded networks and microgrids and um, start providing our um, software to um, energy retailers. And so uh, at this point in time, um, the projects that we've announced, and all of this is on our website, is um, most recently we've partnered with Japan's second largest retail retailer, which is Kepco. We have partnered with um, BCPG and the Thailand government um, for a series of large-scale projects there. We've partnered with Tech Mahindra, which is an Indian company, a lot, very large um, Indian tech company uh, that we may not hear so much about in the West, but they are, are quite a sizable firm. Uh, we've also partnered with um, Help Answers in the States and have started to um, uh, implement a series of projects um, throughout America. And then um, we've had a few wins on the home ground as well. Actually, before I get to Australia, I guess I should also point out um, we've worked with Vector in New Zealand. And yeah, in Australia... Uh, we have a series of premier projects. Um, we've worked with Origin Energy. Uh, you, you, you actually may be an Origin customer. We've worked with TAS Networks and Nest uh, in Tasmania and uh, Project Brainstorm, which is also on the East Coast. And finally, in Western Australia, um, to bring it home, uh, we obviously have the National Lifestyle Village project, which was our proof of concept. But we also have the WGB precinct. Um, that's an arena-funded uh, Australian Renewable Energy Agency-funded a housing precinct with 110 dwellings, um, four apartment buildings, centralised battery and solar in each of the buildings, and we're using the blockchain to transact energy within those. And finally, uh, we were the recent recipient of um, smart cities and suburbs funding from the Australian Federal Government. The overall contribution or the overall raise was $8.5 million. Um, federal, the Australian Federal Government have put in $2.57 million, and what we're doing is working with the city of Fremantle um, partnered with the energy retailer Synergy and the uh, network operator Western Power, and we are examining models um, for um, use of blockchain over the um, distribution network throughout the city of Fremantle. And what's your business model? You take a, a small um, sort of cut of every trade that happens. Well, um, there is that cost that's there, but that's mm -hmm. actually, we don't take revenue from that aspect of, um, of the use of our product. Mm -hmm. So um, at a high level, what happens is in, in our platform, energy is tokenized. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if someone wants to use our, our, our software, um, there's a series of charges and the charges are the first charge is buying enough tokens to be able to then on-sell them to their consumers. It's kind of like concert tickets. You know, if you, if you were going to have a big concert, um, you'd have to have, uh, obviously have these tickets to sell to people. So we obviously provide the the token, which is like the ticket in, the, in that example, and then you would then sell them onto your consumers for use of electricity. Uh, we do have a small charge for um, uh, the cost of the computational power to um, add blocks to the chain. And um, in, in an apartment building, that cost is, you know, it's very, very small. It's minuscule. Um, it's almost a fraction of a cent um, per transaction. But, um, but over a very large network, you know, that, that, that does add up. So we do recoup that cost. Um, and that's really the cost of hosting computational power, um, the electricity uh, required in that. Yeah, uh, that's then passed on through each transaction. And then finally, we have a fixed daily supply charge. So that's quite common within an electricity market. Um, for us, that's uh, a charge that ostensibly covers off on um, the meter reading. It also covers off on us providing an online interface for people to on-ramp their um, fiat currency, in other words, pay their pay their energy bill. That's probably a, a simple way of saying that. And, and those are the costs there. Where we see most of the value in our company is 
in this token generation event, we sold off 350 million tokens. Um, the company themselves, we hold 650 million of those tokens. And ultimately, as we uh, commission projects, that pushes up the value of our cryptocurrency. So in terms of holding um, the lion's share of that, um, that's where we see most of our value. Now, I'm looking at the power ledger charts of the your token, your cryptocurrency. Now, is it true? I mean, are you having as much as up to sort of even, you know, recently between 5 to 10 million US dollars value of crypto of your, your token traded per day? Yeah, that'd be the 24-hour trading volume. Yeah. That's, that's, um, that's pretty substantial for a, a sort of a secondary type of coin, right? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, trading volume, I mean, there's a lot of complexity that leads to overall trading volume. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of um, psychological factors as well, given, given the speculation that's rampant within that space. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, that, that's, uh, the figure can be higher. Um, but, yeah, it, it seems to have um, plateaued at $5 million. I mean, that's, a, that's at least some liquidity. <laughs> that's the to to work with. I mean, that's 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 quite interesting. I know I know you put a little bit pushed for time, James. But just one thing I'd like to just cover before we go. Talk to us a little bit about the how the ICOs work. A lot of people ask me about ICOs and 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 what they about and how they differ to um, listing your company, right? So um, just explain to us a little bit of the dynamics. These people that have that have bought, especially in your in the original, so the ICO, so to speak. They don't own equity in that com- in your company at all, right? It's not exactly the same as an initial sort of a offering on the on the stock exchange. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, no one. I mean, I, I we personally didn't pick the acronym. My feeling is that the term ICO it's too was confusing. Picked, yeah, because you no, know, because it sounds like IPO. I believe it was picked for the reason that it sounds um quite similar. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess the the disclaimer is you know what I'm providing here is not financial advice and um always to defer to ASIC. Um, within Australia um, when participating in this space. But I can give my personal views, not the views of the company, of course. What is an ICO? Um, Well, to my mind, um, what you are acquiring is cryptocurrency of some kind. And as a consumer, you want to make sure that that you know what you're purchasing uh, is not going to be what they call like vaporware. You know, it's not it's not someone who's writing a bit of paper to to make some easy money and then disappear. You want to ensure that you know when you're when you when you are doing that, when you are contributing um, to a company that's undergoing that process, um, that the company will still be around in 10 years, um, that people have put their um, reputations on the line. And also as, as someone that's participating, uh, you'd want to be able to have a sense or an understanding of what value that that business proposition or that innovation is, is going to bring um, the world. And, you know, is there a need for this? And, you know, what are the likely barriers that might, what are the risks and, well. and, and at the yep. moment, the largest risk is the business risk of the company you're buying the ICO in, right? I mean, IPOs in the stock exchange, there's tons of regulation. It's been around for a long time. They've ironed out a lot of the loopholes and the kinks. But ICOs at the moment, I mean, anyone can just declare an ICO, receive money, poof, they've gone next week. And there's just, you know, that's the end of that, right? Yeah. Well, um, the regulation is coming in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, um, I guess you want to look for, yeah. Who is legitimate? And uh, I mean, things that we did to demonstrate that was, you know, registering as a company in Australia. So I've noticed a lot of a lot of these are occurring now in Singapore and mm-hmm. other other regulatory environments that that some might deem um, more favourable. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's the decision that that, that does rest on the uh, consumer, I guess, or the participant in that space. There are a lot of rules and regulation around IPO, and um, and 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 those rules aren't bad things at all. I mean, for one, I personally welcome regulation. Um, in the ICO space, 
but, but but one way to consider it is in in the past for instance um pre-internet you know if you were if you i like the analogy of, of the news you know so if you wanted news about world events you would um you would have to go grab a newspaper and you know ultimately you have to trust that the editor at that newspaper kind of had the best in mind for you um while you know for editing that publication but what, what we've seen with internet and particularly with the blogosphere is we've seen um you know the rise of fake news and things like that but what it does is more burden of responsibilities on the recipient of that news to decide what's true or not and ultimately you know this is a, this is analogous to participating in ICOs because you know, I mean, when we were doing it, when we did our token generation event, which I guess people have been referring to as an ICO, what happened was, um, you know, this was quite a, a relatively new area. And, and for us, we did this um, in order to explore an innovative new business model. Now, since then, it's become the, the Wild West out there. Um, I go to conferences now. I went to Money 2020. I think there was about 80,000 people there. You know, the first Money 2020 I went to, I probably met five people that knew what cryptocurrency was, mm-hmm. who knew what blockchain was. Um, I, you know, the, I went to one last year. Every person I met was conducting an ICO. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, there is a lot of um, people out there doing it. Um, I would often ask penetrating questions and they wouldn't be able to give me legal answers. You know, so there are a lot of cowboys out there. So, I mean, ultimately, you know, this space does need regulation. And um, and uh, unfortunately, the burden does, be- does still fall on the consumer for making that informed choice. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's going through a little bit of the Wild West phase, which is in one sense very, very exciting, but definitely buyer beware. Don't just dish out your money in the crypto space. It's, uh, yeah, it's, you may never see it again. But um, James, it's been yeah. a fascinating t- chat, a lot, to, a lot to digest. Sort of, I think I digested some of it, but um, super, super interesting. Um, you know where the world's heading into into making everything. Um, you know the internet is and technology is amazing at uh, reducing friction in markets, be they human markets like dating apps or energy markets like like uh, what you guys are doing to reduce the friction and make everything more efficient. So really appreciate the time chatting to us on the podcast. We've been talking to James Eggleston, who uh, is the senior a senior analyst at Power Ledger and also a doctoral researcher at the Curtin University Sustainability. Policy Institute. James, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me.